0: Let's talk about expectations. We all have expectations of people in our lives, of family members, of friends, of co-workers, of people in our lives, of our churches even. And sometimes those expectations are expressed out loud and sometimes they go unspoken. And this is often where we run into struggles with family members and friends when when it's your birthday and you hope that your spouse or significant other are going to do something special for you, but you don't tell them that. And then at the end of the day, you're frustrated or grumpy about it because they, they didn't fulfill expectations that you never expressed out loud to them. Or you hope that your boss is going to give you a raise or a promotion and, and this is just kind of this undercurrent of expectation, but you never say it out loud. You never apply for it. You never express that in any kind of spoken way. And then the, the raise or the promotion doesn't come and you're frustrated because you had expectations and they weren't met. I came across a phrase about a year ago that has, has stuck in my head for a while now. I first heard it from Carolyn Moore, and I, as I understand it, she heard it from somebody else, and it's this, expectations are premeditated disappointments. Expectations are premeditated disappointments. In other words, as you have, if you have sky-high expectations, it's hard for reality to match that. One of the ways that people often overcome this is, or that they think they can overcome this is just by lowering their expectations, but that's a way to be pretty sad and miserable through life. But the idea is that if you get your hopes way up, then it's hard for reality to match up to that, and, and expectations can become premeditated disappointments. Uh, if you go into a dinner and you think this is going to be the very best burger you've ever had in your life, it's hard for that burger to live up to those expectations. It's hard, if you think this, is, this next vacation is going to be the best, the best vacation of your entire life, it's going to be hard for reality to match up to those expectations. So expectations can become uh, premeditated disappointments, and we see this on display on Palm Sunday. Are, this is the final morning of our series, By His Wounds, where we've been looking at the ways that Christ suffered on the way to Calvary, the way he suffered by being denied, or being betrayed by Judas, by being interrogated by the Sanhedrin, by being denied, rejected by his friend Peter, and all the various ways that Jesus suffered emotionally and physically. Last week, we walked through the details of the crucifixion, and today, we get to Palm Sunday. The, up until this point, the series, the first six weeks of the series have been based And Mark chapter 14 and 15, which is the last few days of Jesus' life leading up to the crucifixion. But now we're going to jump back to the Sunday before that all started, to Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, which is the event that triggered the final week of Jesus' life, his entry into Jerusalem and what we call Holy Week. And so we're going to look this morning at a time when Jesus, the expectations people had of Jesus led to premeditated disappointments in who he was and what, what that really looked like in his life. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 11, beginning of verse 1. My name is Steve. Great to have you here with us this morning on this Palm Sunday. Looking forward to celebrating Easter with you next weekend. Good morning to all of you here in the room. Good morning to our friends at the Elmira campus. Good morning to those who are joining us online. And it's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us as we jump into the Word. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit at work in our midst. And we pray now as we open up your Word that you would speak to both those who were listening for your voice and those who are trying to avoid you, that we'd hear you, that we'd hear you through the written word, that we'd hear you through the inaudible sound of your voice speaking to us. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. We pray in your name. Amen. Mark 11, beginning verse 1, says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered just as, uh, they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus... And uh, so, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat down on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Now, there's so much symbolism at play here. There's a lot of imagery and symbolism at work here in this passage. So, let me just unpack some of the imagery that's happening here because you can get a sense of what's happening here, but there's even more. Uh, more imagery and symbolism tied up here that just unpacks so much meaning what's what's happening here. The first is that this is happening at the Passover. And this image we have here is a, a picture of the traditional Passover Seder meal, which involves uh, various herbs and, 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 and delicacies that would be part of, uh, of celebrating the Passover Seder. And so Passover actually begins this coming Wednesday. It goes for seven days. It's a seven-day celebration And for Jews, Passover is when they celebrate God's liberation from slavery in Egypt. That they had been slaves in Egypt for centuries, and then God sent along Moses, who led them out of slavery in Egypt, and God rescued them through the Passover, when when they painted blood over the doorposts, and and the Spirit came through, and God liberated them from slavery in Egypt. This is this moment for them of when they remember that they were once slaves, and now they've been set free. And so it's Passover week. Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem at Passover, which is this moment that is just chock full of symbolism and, and deep, profound meaning for them. Because now fast forward to this particular moment in the, in the first century when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, they're once again under foreign occupation. Back when, when the Passover originally happened, Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt and Uh, in a foreign country far from home, and now they're at home, but the Romans have come and the Romans have invaded and they're living under Roman occupation. And so there's a bit of a sense of, could God do it again? Could God do this again? And if you can imagine a time and a place where another government was to, another nation was to invade the United States and occupy us, if, say, the Canadians came down and occupied the United States and they took us over and everybody had to take up hockey and curling and everybody got a pet moose, as wonderful and as delightful as that would be, there would be certain times a year when we'd get a little frustrated and when the Canadian government would rightly be on edge. And of course, one of the days when you would expect the Canadian government to be on edge as they occupy the, the, the lower 50 states, the 50 states of the United States, one of the dates you would expect that would be the 4th of July, Independence Day. That when the 4th of July would roll around, that a lot of us Americans would start to say, you know, as much as we love Tim Hortons and we love... Uh, the, the way that the beaver population the moose population has just skyrocketed here in the States, we're, we still wish we were an independent nation. And there'd be a sense on the 4th of July that we'd have our dander up a little bit. We'd be a little extra frustrated. And maybe those of us who have revolutionary instincts, might, those might bubble up to the surface on the 4th of July. And that's kind of what the Passover is in the first century, that the Passover is this time when they're remembering when God moved with his mighty hand and brought them out of slavery in Egypt and now here again, could God do it again? Could, could God do to the Romans what he did to the Egyptians so many years ago? And that's part of the story that we're seeing unfold here. The second image here is a dude on a horse. Pastor and author Brian Zond says he's, he's traveled the world and gone to different places over the world that you can hardly find a capital city in the world that doesn't include a statue of a man riding a horse. This particular man is George Washington. Kudos to George Washington. George Washington. And I think this is in Washington, D.C. or New York City. But in many, many state capitals across the United States, if you go looking through parks, downtown Buffalo or by Capitol buildings, downtown Buffalo, downtown cities or by Capitol buildings, you'll find statues of somebody riding a horse. Whether that's a military hero or a, an elected leader of some kind, some hero of years gone by, they're riding a horse. Brian Sons said that as he's traveled the world, every city he's gone into, he's found statues of men riding horses. And one time, he and his wife were in the capital city of Portugal, and they came across a statue of a man riding a horse, and he said, there's always some dude on a horse. And it's kind of become a joke for him and his wife. And if you look at the center of the story of Palm Sunday, what's at the center of the story but a dude on a horse? Well, sort of. In fact, a couple years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, Pontius Pilate, the man who was responsible for overseeing his trial, had made his grand entrance into Jerusalem. And he did it, watch this, at the Passover time. And he thought, since there's a chance that some revolutionaries or some people might, might be ready to think that maybe they can take a shot at him or, or somehow that he's a, a leader that they can topple he made a show of military force and rode into Jerusalem on horseback with a great display of military power as if to say, don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. I'm here, I'm in charge, get used to it. Don't even think about it. This is just the way it's going to be. So just a couple years later, Jesus comes riding into town at the Passover and he's another dude showing up on a horse. Well, not quite. If you and I were to show up like this, to try to show up and make a great display of power, you'd probably come in on a great white horse, a strong, muscular horse with a strong name like Lightning or Thunder or Steve. But Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. I don't understand why that was so funny, but Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. You can picture, compared to Pilate, who comes with this great show of force and a strong horse, and he's flanked by all of his guards and all of his soldiers, Jesus is riding a donkey with his toes dragging in the dirt. It looks ridiculous and preposterous by by way of contrast. But in the first century, in the ancient world, kings wouldn't always ride horses. They'd ride a horse when they came for war, and when they came for peace, they'd show up on a donkey. And so they're coming expecting that their new Messiah is going to come as a show of force and coming ready for war, but instead he comes as a prince of peace. So we've got Passover, and all the symbolism and expectations around Passover. We've got a dude on a horse, as as is such a common symbol throughout history. And then on top of that, we have the palm branches. And in the Jewish world, the palm branches would symbolize, uh, they'd be kind of what, in the first century to politics, what what the stars and stripes are to American politics. If you think about having sparklers or fireworks or the or the american flag on the fourth of july the palm branches would have that kind of symbolism it was kind of a symbol of nationalism and national identity but in addition to that it was a way of expressing allegiance to someone it was a way of of declaring your allegiance to a new king and so when the when when jesus is making his entry in people are taking off their coats they're laying their cloaks on the road before jesus they're cutting down palm branches and they're laying those down before jesus All as a way of signaling, that's our king. I vote for him. That's the one I want. I'm following him. And they've got all these thoughts of revolution and of of, of political might and military might all bubbling up to the surface here. And we see this especially hit a crescendo in, in Mark chapter 11, verse 9, when it says, Those who went ahead and those who followed behind shouted, Hosanna, which means save us, or oh save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. So you've got all this imagery, a guy on a horse at the Passover, palm branches, everybody knows what's going on, but the only thing that isn't happening is campaign slogans and campaign buttons. It's all, it's so clear exactly what's happening. This is a political parade. And then they shout out, save us, save us the way that Moses saved us from the Egyptians, save us from the Romans the way that Moses saved us back in those days, all those years ago. Don't miss this. Right here, it's painfully clear to Jesus, right in this particular moment, that if he's going to do the work that the Father has given him to do, he's going to have to disappoint the crowds. That if he is going to be faithful to the Father, that being faithful to the Father will mean disappointing the crowds. He's never been more popular. He's never been more, had his name shouted with greater acclaim, never have more people been excited to see Jesus than right here in this moment. And he knows what nobody else knows, that to fulfill the mission that the Father has given him will mean disappointing a whole lot of people. And this is often the way it is for us. That being faithful to the Father, being faithful to the plan that God has for us, will often mean disappointing people that we maybe don't want to disappoint. Through this series, By His Wounds, we've been looking at all the different ways that Christ suffered and the sacrifices he had to make on the way to the cross. And this is the maybe the, the first one of these points of, of friction, points of, of frustration, or at least a sacrifice that he had to make of sacrificing his popularity, of sacrificing his reputation, of not taking advantage of the great swell of popularity, the great swell of enthusiasm that circled around him, and saying, "Nope, to be faithful to the Father is going to mean disappointing a whole lot of people. And for you, in your walk with Christ, it may be that God is calling you to do something particular. It may be that there is a particular task or a particular uh, thing that God is calling you to do, and to do that, you know it's going to mean disappointing some other people. You know that somebody's going to think you're weird or somebody's going to be disappointed with your decision, but, but you know that God is calling you to do this, and there's a price that comes along with it. Or in general, in the Christian life, we know that to be a Christian in any culture at any time in any nation is always to go against the grain. To be a Christian in 21st century America is to go against the grain of our culture, is to be swimming upstream. And we know that, that it has never been popular to be a Christian, despite the times when it's been maybe the thought that it's more popular to be a Christian than others. It has never been a matter of going with the flow to be Christian in American culture, and especially in the 21st century, that we are always going against the grain. Or it could be even with your family. Henry Nauen, two years before he died, said, Only recently I realized that I still wanted to change my father, hoping that he would give me the kind of attention I desired. I had already left my family and my country for more than 20 years when I became fully aware that I was still trying to live up to the expectations of my father and mother. And he said, He was surprised to realize. Uh, at this point in, in late middle age, how, how much of his decisions were motivated by a desire to please his family? How, much, how, much, how many of his decisions had been tied to trying to make his mother and father happy or his family happy? And how even in ways he was not fully aware of, he was still trying to please them. And so whether it's family expectations or whether it's the expectations of broader culture or people in your life, to be faithful to the father will often mean disappointing the people around us, disappointing the crowds. And the crowds are a terrible litmus test for the will of God. The crowds are a terrible assessment of, of what God is really up to. That oftentimes being faithful to the Father means disappointing the crowd. And we, and we know that that's exactly how this story ended, that not only were the crowds disappointed, they were actually quite livid with Jesus. And we see this in Mark chapter 15. We're going to jump ahead now to when Jesus comes face-to-face with Pilate. Mark chapter 15, verse 1 It says, very early in the morning, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, they made their plans. So they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. And the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Again, Jesus is saying so much without saying a word here. Uh, but now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the, the people had requested. This is this, this kind of custom apparently they had. And a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. So he says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Thinking that, of course, that's what they're going to ask. Uh, and, and he asked that knowing that it was a self, out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to them. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do with the one whom you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And just like that, Jesus loses the only election he was ever a part of. Just like that, he goes from this groundswell of popularity and what feels like very much a political parade as he enters Jerusalem, to losing an election to an insurrectionist. Philip Yancey sums the scene up powerfully beautifully when he says, the only time Jesus met with powerful political leaders, his hands were tied and his back was clotted with blood, church and state have had an uneasy relationship ever since. So much for the dude on a horse. So much for the great groundswell of popularity. So much for their aspirations, expectations, or premeditated disappointments. And that crowd was sure disappointed with Jesus and the way that he conducted himself that week. Jesus made it really clear. He predicted many ways that his followers would, would be received by the world. And parades and acclaim, parades and applause were not part of the equation. Jesus predicted many responses that his followers would have when we encounter the world. And parades and applause were not what he said we should expect from the world. That he came into town and they were cheering for him, thinking that he was going to be a champion warrior who could deliver them from Pontius Pilate. And instead he comes as a prince of peace who was crucified by Pontius Pilate. They come hoping that he's going to reinstate the kingdom of Israel and instead he comes proclaiming the kingdom of God. They come waving their palm branches, saying, Oh, save us, won't you come and save us? And they want him to, to come and rescue them from their oppressors. Instead, he comes by the way of sacrifice. Being faithful to the Father will often mean disappointing the crowds. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you come from a great line of people who have recognized that what's right is not always popular, and what's popular is not always right. We come from a line of people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who said, we don't care about your fiery furnace. Our God is able to rescue us from the fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down and worship your false gods. We come from a line of people like Daniel who when he was threatened with the lion's den still worshiped his God and was faithful and was closed in by the lion's den and was, yet there was protected and preserved by God even after spending a night in the lion's den there as a punishment for his faithfulness to God. We come from a line of people like Peter and the early Christians who said, we must obey God rather than man. We come from a line of people like Joshua who said, if serving the Lord is undesirable to you, then choose today whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We come from a line of people who are described in Hebrews chapter 11 this way, some face jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, They were put to death by stoning, they were sawed in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And I love this line, the world was not worthy of them. We come from a long line of people who've recognized that what's popular is not always right. What's right is not always popular and that being faithful to the Father will often put us at cross purposes with the world around us. But yet we recognize that Jesus, who went from this great groundswell of popularity, having a parade thrown in his honor, was just a few days later crucified after losing the only election of his life, but then was raised up again, is now seated at the right hand of the Father and given the name above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. So I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God on display Among us. And yet, we see in Pilate a cautionary tale in the very last verse. Watch this, verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. There it is. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. We will often be at cross purposes with the world around us. We will often find ourselves at odds with with people around us and the culture around us, and we will often find that being faithful to the Father means disappointing people around us. So I want to invite you to consider three questions for, for consideration. First is, how much time do you spend worrying about what other people think about you? How much time do you spend thinking, how much energy and concentration goes to worrying what other people think about you? It's one thing. It's good to get along with people. That's a good thing. It's good to be nice to people. It's, it's a good thing to be popular. But being a people pleaser is a drain on your energy and on and so much good that, you can be, that can be done. So how much time do you spend worrying about what other people think about you? Number two, how has the fear of disappointing someone else held you back from what God has for you? How, has, how have you recognized that some, God is calling you to something, he has something for you, And the fear of disappointing someone else is keeping you from stepping out in faith and obedience. And the last question here is, have you counted the cost of following a crucified Savior? One of the the problems of the the American church, the 21st century American church in particular, is that we have made it seem like being a Christian is a a cost-free experience. That there is no cost, that there is no risk that comes along with it. When Jesus was very clear, expectations are premeditated disappointments. And if you think that becoming a Christian is going to make your life easier, I've got a disappointment coming for you because it is often going to put us at cross purposes with the world around us. There is a great great cost that comes with being a Christian and around the world, the decision to follow Jesus comes at great personal expense, sometimes at the expense of persecution or their very lives. And we don't get to just follow the Savior who appeared on Palm Sunday with a great groundswell of popularity. We follow a crucified Savior who was wildly unpopular in those last few days. Natalia Dmitryk, I think that's how you pronounce her name, was born in what is now the Ukraine. And uh, she was born, though she and her sister can hear, her parents are both deaf. And so she grew up bilingual, being able to do sign language, but then also able to speak. And as a result of that, uh, she made a career out of that. In fact, her, her mother and father say that her first words are when she was just a, a little girl, her baby sister was born, her baby sister was in the next room crying, and they say that uh, uh, Natalia came into the room and, and motioned to them like this and then and traced a tear on her cheek as a way of signaling the baby's crying in the other room. And her parents say those were her first words to them, that, that making that, those signs to them. And uh, she made a career out of being a translator for sign language. And uh, she was, had a little corner on the state-run TV in the Ukraine uh, during the news. She'd be th- there in the lower corner doing sign language uh, f- during the news broadcast. And in the 2004 election in Ukraine, uh, the election results had come in. And she says that everyone in the newsroom knew that what they were being told to report by the state-run media was a farce. That what the results they were being told to report were fake, that it was a sham, that th- that was not the actual results of the, the election and yet nobody in the newsroom had the nerve to do anything about it. And so the, the newscasters, the anchor men and women were reporting the news as they were being told to report, but she couldn't bring herself to do it. She couldn't lie. And so down in that little corner of the screen, she signed to about the 100,000 people in the Ukraine that night. Don't believe them. They're lying to us. This is not who was elected. This is who was elected. They're lying to us. They're trying to deceive us. It's all a lie don't believe them. And nobody in the newsroom knew that night that she had done that. Nobody in the newsroom realized that and she went home that night without any of her colleagues or coworkers there realizing what she had said. But 100,000 people in her audience had heard that. And gradually word began to spread of what she had said and what she had done. And it inspired great courage from a lot of other people in the media and other people who were, who were covering the news. And soon enough, the word began to spread that it was a rigged election, that it was a sham, And it changed the course of the nation, and the proper elected president was put in place all because one person had the courage to use her little corner of the screen to speak up and make a difference. You've got a little corner of your life, however big or however small that might be. You've got this little corner of your world, and you've got a chance to influence people around you. And they might have a certain set of expectations of you, but you've got an opportunity to be faithful and to make a difference, and to defy expectations, to defy the expectations of people around you, and to use your little corner to make a difference in a way that's countercultural and defies expectations. Let me pray for us. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we want to be with you. To be among those in the streets shouting, Hosanna, save us, but not because of the expectations they have, but because of what we know about. Because of what we know about what you've done and how you came to save us. All hail the King of the Jews. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, we count the cost. We have counted the cost of what it means to follow you. We thank you that you, you're not pulling a great bait and switch with us and promising one way and then and then surprising us on the other side. That you were upfront about the cost that it often incurs for us to follow you. Help us be faithful to you even when it's unpopular. Help us be faithful to you even when it's going against the grain of, of our families or our friends. Fill us with the joy of the resurrection. Pray in your name. Amen.